You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with two commensurate traders with long experience in the buy side and the sell side, both focusing on getting the best execution for their respective shops and their clients. We speak to how the COVID crisis has tested the business continuity plans of all market participants and where the future is trading now as we settle in this new regime and later as we move forward in what will likely be a different trading desk and office infrastructure. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today's Thursday, May 14th, and this is Alternative Thinking with James Baron from CASA. Today we have John Christophilus with AGF Investments and Benjamin Arnold with Marikai Global Advisors. We'll start with self-introductions. Uh, start with you, John. Thank you, James. Appreciate the uh, the opportunity to uh, to be on your podcast Uh yeah, as, as you said, uh, my name is John Christopoulos. I've been with uh, AGF uh, management for about seven years now. Uh, prior to that, I spent my, my career on the other side of the street, as on, the, on the sell side uh, at shops uh, like Canaccord Genuity, Stifo Financial, and uh, E-Trade Institutional. So I've been on both sides of the street, which gives me a, a pretty good perspective on, on markets and what people think about and how they think about things. And um, my model has always been to bring a little buy side to the sell side, or a little sell side to the buy side, that is. Um, and AGF uh, as an organization has been around since 1957. It was actually the first Canadian mutual fund company to allow uh, Canadians to invest in the U.S. markets. Uh, AGF actually stands for American Growth Fund, which is still our flagship product. Mm-hmm. Um, we service retail, institutional, high net worth, and alternative clients. Uh, across a number of uh, offices uh, globally, Canada, U.S., Europe, and, and Asia. Wow, that's quite a quite a breadth from. Uh, and I was going to ask you about that, the American Growth Fund. When I was a uh, broker back in the '90s, I heard that I go, "Oh, that's what AGF means." But everyone yeah. kind of misses that and what it what it actually is. So that's pretty cool. Bringing some of the uh, the sell side to the buy side. So what what in particular maybe did you learn from? the uh the sell side uh maybe the tricks and tricks and traps that that you brought to the buy and i guess people regularly go back and forth but uh, is there something really that you took to to your new chair yeah that's a a great question i mean there's a lot of things that uh, that i learned on the sell side it's a great training ground to be a buy side trader if you spend some time on the other side and i think that the most important thing i learned that is that communication actually matters and sharing information matters uh, I know all you guys have been on trading desks in the past on the sell side and you know the, the noise and the activity that goes on. That's just information sharing. So I've tried to bring that to, to AGF uh, with my analysts and my portfolio managers and the other traders is to share as much information as possible and to make sure that we're not hoarding any information that could help our portfolio managers and analysts make the right decision. Mm-hmm. That'd be the first thing. The second thing I would say is, uh, you know, taking a, a pride in our execution. Right. Uh, my clients are my analysts and my PMs and ultimately my my retail or institutional clients and every penny counts. And when we're executing, we take great pride in making sure that we're doing the best we possibly can and taking care of that order like it would be my, my, our own money. So because on the sell side, you know, it's pretty obvious if you do a poor job on execution, you may not get the next order. I think about it the same way on the buy side. I want to do a, as good a job for our PMs and analysts 
as I do uh, for my own money. So uh, that's those are the two things that I've learned and that I've tried to bring over to AGF. Now, those are great lessons. How about for the communication side, now that we have uh, kind of locked down, and I guess there's always been trading in remote areas. We haven't had a lot of pits. I don't know if there's any, any left now. But generally, I mean, I imagine you were on the, a big trading floor and people could uh, could uh, just yell out what's happening. You get a, a bit of a tone. But So do you have like an open Zoom and you guys have a hoot and holler with all of your your traders now? Or how do you guys, how do you keep that communication? Or, or are you downtown and you got plexiglass around you? Yeah, <laughs> not yet. Uh, no, we're, we're working remotely. Our entire office has been remote now for about nine weeks or so. And there's a number of ways to communicate. Uh, we all have uh, Bloomberg terminals. So we have the IB a function on Bloomberg to communicate like instant messaging. We have Zoom. We have WebEx. You know, we have email. We have the, you know, the old fashioned telephone even works from time to time. So Holy there's lots of ways to communicate. I think the key to the whole idea of being remote is staying in touch and staying connected. And whichever way that happens to be, we'll use all methods and methodology to, to communicate with our, uh, you know, our counterparts. Cool. And then I guess, well, we're going to have a bit more coronavirus later on too, but like, so um, I don't want to get in here in just a sec, but so do you think this is going to continue? Like if we are allowed to come back in 12 months, like it'll just, or will you say, Hey, you know what, you know, John, I'm doing a great job here. <laughs> Why don't we just do this? do this uh, remotely or people kind of eager to get back? That's the uh, James, that's the million dollar question. My personal opinion is we're in a new world. We're in a, uh, a changing world and I'm not sure we're going to go back to, to normalcy anytime soon. Um, I also feel that um, the work life balance that we're experiencing by, by doing things the way we're doing things Mm -hmm. has been outstanding and very, very healthy for a lot of people. Uh, you know, you don't have to commute downtown. You don't have to spend the money for, uh, you know, um, the go train or or Ubers or whatever the case may be on lunches and whatever the case may be. And I think we're more efficient. So looking forward, my guess would be a combination of at home and in the office and having some sort of rotational um, program. And I'm thinking about that for the trading desk. We have four traders on our desk um, and we don't all need to be on the desk in the office in the downtown core all day, every day. So why not have some sort of rotational uh, system where we have a better work-life balance? So yes, I think things have changed. Things will change going forward. And I don't think we're going back to the way we were, um, you know, call it three months ago or four months ago. Yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, I was on a plane about half a year last year, but uh, I don't know. I kind of miss it, but kind of not, but we'll see. Yeah. Hey, Ben, how about your story? Uh, What have you been doing for the last little while with uh, Maritime? Great. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, so as you said, my name is Ben Arnold, and I am the founder and CEO of Maracay Global Advisors. Um, and Maracay Global Advisors, we are a global multi-asset outsourced trading and operations firm, um, which launched as a April of last year, and we are located in Park City, Utah, the mountains. A um, little bit of background. So I left Goldman Sachs. So like, like John, I spent both sides of the fence. Uh, I, I First was on the buy side, um, but I left Goldman in 2016 to help expand another outsourced trading business um, as I had felt that the buy side trading landscape was starting to rapidly change. Um, fast forward to 2018, and again, I found myself unable to continue down the comfort path. At the time, I was resisting the change even more than usual, mm-hmm. um, even though I was unhappy with the, the way things were currently being done. Uh, part of that's mostly I moved my family to Park City from San Francisco. 
a new house, mm. new twins on top of a two and a four year old. And, and, you know, to say the least, my, uh, <laughs> high toler- my high tolerance for risk was not what it once was. Um, but the drive and passion I had to provide and, and kind of always been how I've, you know, provided clients that I've serviced, regardless of what my function is. Um, there's a group of them that supported me from the beginning. So a premium and excellent service eventually took over. So I spent the next year uh, formulating and writing a thesis for the firm and culminated in the forming of, of Marikai. I have a question, actually. But what is what is your typical equity client look like? What size of desk did they have or would have had? Uh, size of the AUM? Anything anything along those lines that would be helpful for, for us to know about? Yeah, for context, that's a great question. Thanks. They... Um, so we, we get asked a lot, what is the typical or what is your bread and butter? And, and there really isn't one. We're finding every client is very different. But if I was to put it in a category, actually, every client we have used to use one of the other outsourced trading firms and then now uses us. The ones that we currently have don't have any traders and we do 100% of their trading uh, global, usually long, short, global. And then now we're starting to have a few more that are long, short and credit. So we're starting to trade. We're the only one, we can trade any product that any client can, and our average fund size is, you know, five hundred million and, and more. Cool. How about the markets that you're in? Like, uh, yeah, India and China. Are there? Are you in mostly long short funds? Is it difficult? And how do you get borrow? Uh, or is there like leverage facilities now? Like, how how is that different from say the the North American markets? And and do you do those other markets well? You you you. You happen to to specialize in the uh, emerging markets. Yeah, so we um, have a lot of we, we tend to find traders that are experienced in something, but are very good at everything because we you know we like to have traders that are multi asset. Um, but obviously, if you haven't traded or spent much time in Asia, it, it's a big jump from the U.S. or Canada markets or more developed. Um, so myself, being Asia background, um, our Asia trader was a trader for Janus at First State Asia. Um, mm-hmm. So very seasoned. And, you know, the things I would say the Asian markets are less complex than the U.S. markets. There's not as many mm-hmm. menus and different things that you need to think about. And the borrow mechanisms are the same. It's just less. It's just more opaque. So you're asking for borrow. There's not a lot of GC names, but there's a lot of 10 to 30 percent borrow cost names. Um, and mm-hmm. unlike the U.S., actually. When you're borrowing uh, from a lender in the U.S., your, your rates can change daily, where in Asia, they tend to remain stagnant for a longer period of time. And they're usually a little bit more flexible oh. in the negotiation of that. That's interesting. Um, so in a, in a crisis or when, when things are, the markets are getting wonky, they really don't change the rates. They just kind of keep it going. And then if some, or if something gets easier to borrow, they kind of leave the – they just leave the – the high rates there, like that's kind of interesting there. They will. Yeah, they're not as, I wouldn't say not as sophisticated, but the U.S. has been around and doing this for a lot longer than the lenders. So mm-hmm. they're probably a little bit more adept at doing that. I hope it doesn't change, but uh, as all things, it probably will. You know, unlike Korea right now, you can't short. The government is halted. You know, I was in Korea 0204, and I remember 2003, we had a uh, big, big thing at the uh, Yuksum, the 63 building there. And, um, there was a guy from I said hedge fund in I forget the name in, in Japan, and he said, "Man, you can't do board. You got to do stuff offshore and all this. It's a real mess. 
you know, the first shop that the first bank that, that gets this through and we can do board, they're going to make tons of money. <laughs> and because they'll be the only, the only shop on the street doing it. And then people will copy, of course. And, but I, I thought, wow, that that's going to change the market here. Cause there's actually going to be onshore hedge funds. This is, you know, people smell the money and they're going to, they're going to go for it. And at that time, the futures market was the highest volume. I think it's number two now or something, but it was really punters losing their money because they'd lose their money in the cash markets and lose it again in the futures. But, uh, and the institutions made it made a ton of money, but so yeah, the, the shorts didn't get, didn't didn't come on. Um, so how do you short that market, and yeah. how do you uh, are there other like inefficiencies in there? Because like I say, the um, there's so many things that I saw that were just like what, <laughs> but you know people are making money at it. So yeah, you have to short on swap, so you need to have a, it's the counterparty to do so, um, and then it's usually you know an offshore lender of the security. That you know your your prime broker would would have a relationship and you would borrow from them, um, and they used to have single stock futures in Korea. Uh, now, right. you know the only market left is India with single stock futures, and they don't have a borrow mechanism for typical shorting. Hmm. How about from your side, John? Uh, you guys are in many many markets, uh, firmly ensconced here in North America, but also like you said, globally. How hmm. do you manage these? Uh, offshore venues and uh, trading venues and, and relationships and that. Yeah, very similar to, to, to Ben. Yeah, we trade in 44 different markets uh, around the world. So we're always in, in motion somewhere in the world. And from my perspective, having the proper counterparties, whether that's a local broker in a market like India, which is very difficult to trade, uh, or a bulge bracket uh, in, in you know Hong Kong, whatever. The key for me is to be able to trust that counterparty um, that, that they understand my style of execution, uh, follow my instructions, and have the right mindset around execution. Um, you know, I don't want to just drop it off, fall asleep, and you know, wake up in the morning and look for look for the surprise. I, I don't like surprises. Uh, I want I want our traders to be engaged when we give them an order, uh, and if there's an issue, to call me, wake me up, do whatever possibly. I don't sleep much anyways, James. Um, so, uh, I, I do, uh, I do want them to be fully engaged in the order. And if they're not, then they're not on my list. And then, so from your experience with sell side, buy side, kind of what would you take from, from your seat now to, uh, like an, an outsource provider, like, like Ben shop, uh, Marikai, like, would you, um, is there anything that you would give him as kind of advice to get other than like, don't screw up the order <laughs> to, yeah. uh, to win people's business and keep it and that, or, or is it all kind of. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I wouldn't tell Ben what to do and how to do it. But one of the things I think a lot of sell side traders forget is to make sure that they're communicating with the buy side and understand what their what the buy side's benchmark is, what they're looking for in a result. And that's just communication. That's just asking questions. Right. Um, And and understanding the buy side's tendencies. Uh, And one thing I will always say, and I tell this to every one of my sell side traders, I'm okay if you try something. If you have an idea and you want to you want to try a execution style or uh, try to take advantage of an opportunity, I'd rather you try than just throw it into a, an algo and walk away and then just give me my fill at the end of the day. We're all looking to do the best we possibly can, and you know you can, you can do a much better job if you're trying to do something versus just you know being content with mediocrity and putting it into a VWAP machine and walking away. So. The only thing I would say to Ben is understand your clients' requirements and their benchmarks, and try to fulfill that as best uh, as best you can. 
how about to your side, Ben? What kind of questions do you ask to kind of get a feel for what the client needs? Um, like some of them, I guess, maybe just say, hey, you know, just algo the thing and away we go. Uh, and others are a bit more more like John, and I guess there's something in between. Or are there different types of personalities of of clients that you have, and then you match the traders to that? And then, and also, how many how many traders do you have on staff? Uh, yeah, so that's that's a great question. So we, um, you know, we go through a pretty deep learning process of you know when a new client has approached us, and, and we actually are pretty selective about the clients that we choose because. We don't want to look and we won't staff our desk like a sales trading desk. We provide a bespoke solution and a, and a premium service. So we want to make sure that the client always has the same, if not better, of a solution than they would have if they had an internal trader. And I, you know, every, certain funds that works for certain funds, certain funds it doesn't. They're just everyone is very different. Um, and because of that, you know, maybe they're. Maybe they're more heavily focused in Asia. So then we have someone, one point person um, for the eight, for the Asia bit. Um, now, we are very siloed in our model where we only have one trader covering a maximum of like one to three funds, because I believe after that, you can't really do a very good job. Um, and it's very difficult. And because what we find is, you know, a lot of execution is somewhat commoditized. And that's a favorite word being thrown around these days. I don't fully agree with it, but I can understand it because like John had talked about um, with people just chucking things at an algo and, you know, I could do that myself, but being involved in the investment, in the investment process and understanding the names and the stories and seeing our clients' portfolios, which most of them share, then we can actually do what a real trader's job is and helping them hedging positions, um, <clears throat> monitoring exposures, finding other opportunities, different ways of expressing a view. Uh, across the capital structure, um, and, and that's how we how we view it. I, I would believe it's the exact same thing that John and his team does to service their PMs, and we look at it no different. And and, and our clients are typically like, "Look, we pay you to be the expert of trading, so we're not going to tell you how to trade." Um, and communication is key, and making sure that there's a very very good understanding of what someone wants. Um, you, you don't ever want to be on the wrong side of not understanding, so you always got to ask a lot of questions. Um, and how many traders we have? We currently have. Three traders, um, one one and eight, one's full time at night, and then um, two more of us. Um, and we are <clears throat> probably bringing on another more credit specialist shortly. Um, and we're getting ready to open a New York office uh, when COVID things die down a bit. Yeah. Cool. So on that, so you 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 uh, you get really get to know the client. Um, I guess I'm not as often as they should be do you have any discretion or do you have to do exactly what they what they do or like to or is it just kind of you can work the order sort of thing how, how does that work we don't have discretion in the traditional sense of i'm not going to put a position into their fund without them so they need to tell me what they want to do like security um etc they may say hey increase our portfolio uh, increase the position in the portfolio mm -hmm. to five percent and then we have discretion to execute that unless they've told us how we see fit to get them the best execution. And given that we never face our counter, our clients uh, from a settlement or commission standpoint, right. we act as the trader, but we can only execute those trades with the counterparties that the client has a relationship with. So if one client wants to trade mm -hmm. with Goldman and the other client wants to trade with Goldman, but he doesn't have a relationship or a trading account with Goldman, we can't trade a Goldman for that client. 
That's cool. Um, and how about, so you said it's a bespoke service. Uh, I imagine that brings along with it bespoke fees. <laughs> um, how do you how do you price this? Um, and like you, because you have infrastructure, you have trading costs and tech and all this, and then you have profit margin. Um, kind of how do you price it? And then I guess it's going to be like say more than one where where someone just you know drive like a drive through sort of uh, sort of sort of trading. Uh, and then then we'll go to John and say like how do you gauge value from this uh, from from this type of outsource or other types of outsourcing? But we'll start with you, Ben. We're not going to be, or maybe we are seen as, but we are not like a discount brokerage type of uh, service. Mm-hmm. Um, so we price it based off of a commission, uh, based off of the type of, you know, either in the US or Europe or Asia, basis points, cents per share, um, and, and or product like high yield, you know, there may be a different rate, et cetera, um, or, uh, and options, FX, et cetera. The rate at which we are charging is not the biggest factor in how we how we think about things the way that we think about things is we're providing a service we expect a certain number to make it sensible for us and viable for us because we are not going to be replacing the same thing that someone could do internally by going and hiring like a junior trader we're going to provide a senior trader that's going to give you the best possible result now if a client is not feeling that they are getting the best result and for what they pay for then you know we have a discussion. Likewise, if we don't feel that we're being paid enough, then we have a discussion with them about why and, and what we expect. And, and it comes down to just a partnership and making sure that the relationship is good. And, and you know when that happens, there, there's no issues. It's a very it's a very comfortable dialogue um, as opposed to okay, you know we don't want anyone to ever feel that they need to generate trades to pay us or anything like that. And we don't you know we could get paid a monthly fee. We're we're very agnostic. It's a it's a it's a conversation that needs to happen to make sure that everyone feels they're receiving the right value for the right cost. Yeah, and James, if I could just uh, jump in here for a moment, I, I love the the, the thought of um, it, it has to work for both parties, right? It has to work for Ben because he's running a business, and it has to work for John and AGF, and that's the only way that partnership, from my perspective, actually works. And that's the value if it can work for both. Then you can sit down and say, okay, we've got the right you know, financial model. Now let's just talk markets and see which markets we can actually benefit from. So I've always been a big fan of, you know, we've seen, we've seen uh, commissions contract to, to next to nothing in some markets, right? Um, you get what you pay for. Yeah. And if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys, as they say. That's an old saying that's been around for a long, long time. Um, and I prefer to actually pay a little bit more to get a better execution quality and a better result for, for, the, for the fund and for our clients. So people are mistaken sometimes uh, that, you know, less expensive execution is, is better for you. It's actually not. It's probably detrimental to your fund. Uh, and paying a little bit more and getting the service that you need is probably a lot more um, a lot more better or much better than, than, you know, paying a discounted rate. The explicit cost is easy, but the implicit costs, you know, of execution are, can be you know, multiples. Maybe that's a little bit of my sell side coming out, right? Um, <laughs> I used to hate sitting on the other side and somebody would give me, a, you know, a quarter of a penny. And, uh, you know, uh, you'd say, wow, a quarter penny. Why do I care? Right? So um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a little bit of my sell side coming out. But I do I do believe that a, a fair rate for good service is should be should be the norm. Yeah, I think during the, uh, was it, I think it was the oil negative pricing debacle there with the make contracts. And uh, there was a discount broker that, that mispriced the thing and just, called and, and basically just um, destroyed a lot of clients' accounts for a bit. 
Um, but I guess if you have like steadier hands on the tiller there, you can get something that, that has a way better, way better result than just a knee jerk, like an, like, like, say like an algo, or they just say, well, it's here, bang, it's out. It's like, what? That's a negative number. You can't use that. Yeah. Um, that actually, that actual discount broker, if I remember correctly, their system couldn't go below zero. So the traders were buying, they were buying stock, they were buying futures at a penny or two pennies and it was trading down $30. <laughs> Um, so uh, I think in the end, ultimately, that that one particular trader that was uh, written about lost nine million dollars. How about in the in the um, uh, the contracting side? How how long are these contracts? Is it like month to month or annual or or kind of at will? And then um, uh, then like, do you find that clients graduate from so to speak from from outsourcing and they 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 insource and get somebody on their own desk, or they just say, hey, you know what? Um, it's going to take a lot of volume to get there, and uh, and a lot of them just just stay with an outsourced solution. And John, you can chime in after as well. Um, yeah, so we don't have a contract period. Like I know other outsourced firms do. Oh wow! I'm confident in our ability and what we're doing that they're not going to want to change. And you know, locking them in into a guarantee or something has just not been something that we have done. Now, could we? Sure, um, but we haven't found the need to, because like I said, most of our clients are managing over $500 million. And the reason that is, is because if you go lower than that, while it's very possible, you know, some, sometimes it may not make economical sense. Um, not always, but that just tends to be the kind of the level. I'll jump in here um, in terms of uh, the contract. Yeah, I would, I would be uh, pretty adverse to signing any sort of contract for an outsourced trading desk uh, like, like Ben's um, because it's you, you pay for quality, right? And if you're getting good quality, you continue to pay. And if you're not getting good quality, I, as the client, should have the right to not pay any any longer. And I'm sure Ben is fully appreciative of that, especially coming from Goldman Sachs. He understands that you know if you do a good job, you're going to get paid. Uh, and if you don't, then you're probably not going to get paid. So uh, having a contract probably wouldn't work uh, for us at AGF. Um, but it w- what, something that would work, and we're much larger than a $500 million fund, um, I do like the fact that Ben is hiring specialist traders for particular markets because there are markets around the world that people really don't do a very good job at understanding market structure, understanding how markets operate in, in that particular uh, jurisdiction, and having an expert actually does work. So it would be something that I would consider, and Ben and I have talked about this in the past, uh, on specific markets, uh, um, having his specialized trader execute on our behalf yeah i no, appreciate that and that that makes sense and in, in like i think it ties into your question james about do they graduate i don't think it's a necessarily a graduation um category because you know there's nothing to say that because you have an internal trader that's going to be better than an outsourced one it all depends on the person and who you're hiring right so if we're if we can provide it and provide especially if you're global you need to be a larger fund that can support this. It's not cheap to run a, a trading desk. I'm sure John knows full well and, and lots of headcount. So by having the outsource, you know, it's it's a it's a you're softening your costs, but you're not letting go of your quality, right? So um, it's it's a it's a pull you know pull tub kind of thing to figure out what what works best internally, especially if you're trading multi products. Yeah. Do you think going forward, uh, and this kind of back into the coronavirus thing that we've, um, people might be getting by with less. Um, do you think there'll be fewer head, 
like fewer heads or less head count going forward as as they have the automation or will it be are we kind of at a like a steady state for for hiring yeah from my perspective and and our ceo has said this uh for a couple of years now um we think that this market uh, or our industry uh, per se is is not going to get much larger if at all from where we are today so we see some contraction in the industry because of technology whether that's on the trading side on the operations side on whatever side uh, we've probably maxed out in terms of the number of people in our industry. Um, and that's just efficiency, right? Technology allows us to do a lot of different things, much more efficient than having rooms full of individuals trying to execute some of that stuff that's that's been going on. So we think that the, the headcount is uh, peaked. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, it's not the greatest story, but unfortunately, we don't see it growing much uh, or growing at all, actually. I would uh, I would agree with that. Um you know, the industry has contracted in every facet except for compliance. That's obviously expanded. Um, and as you get more and more regulatory, that those areas are going to and things are becoming more complex. We expect like markets and asset management businesses to continue to be volatile and not and not normal for a while. Um, and when the volatility is there, there's a lot more disruption, a lot more opportunities. So you're seeing a lot more specialist type funds getting launched and opportunistic type funds. So the, mar- the air- it doesn't grow to- in totality, but in certain areas, it's certain- it-, it is. All right, that's a perfect segue to what's usually my usual question of where are the opportunities? Is there maybe something in the, the market infrastructure or the way, uh, like just, just the way things are trading or like I say, with these, disloca- they're probably just dislocation funds, but I don't think that affects too much the, the public markets, uh, maybe more, more the private side, like they were buying up houses in, in the great financial crisis. But where, where are you seeing opportunities or maybe where new clients are pulling you and saying, hey, can you, can you trade this stuff? And you're like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of interest in looking at CLOs, CDOs, ABS, uh, uh, CMBS, and, and SASB, single asset, single buyer type things. Um, more, a lot of, there's been a lot of interest in structured credit. Uh, and you can probably know that there's been a lot of that in the news. Um, you know, if if I was to try to pick out where I think some opportunities are that you can capitalize on, I mean, one thing's been kind of sticking out that a couple of people flagged is that, you know, while the global economy certainly collapsed, the stock market hasn't. So there's a lot less opportunity as of late. Um, but further, there's not a lot of risk premium priced into the U.S. stock market for the uh, upcoming U.S. presidential election. Um, and you, you can see that pair cleanly from 2000, in 2017, if you looked at a basket of like high tax paying stocks versus low tax paying stocks. Um, and it is not reverted or is not pricing in any of that, any of that factor risk. So that is one thing that we've started to, you know, see and kind of point out. How about on your side, John? Is AGF looking at other markets, uh, things opening up. You have like name the markets you're in, and what are you looking at? Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of opportunities, I think there, there's two that come top of mind. One is the alt space. Uh, you know, uh, since the recent changes in liquid alts here in Canada, uh, we see more and more advisors uh, much more interested in the alt space. Uh, so that's one area of focus. We've launched a number of products as have others. Uh, so that's one. And then two on the institutional side. Something that a lot of people aren't talking about, but during this recent downdraft, lots of products out there who promised to deliver a certain result did not deliver that result. 
And ultimately, what we're going to see and what we think we're going to see is a ton of search activity as other stakeholders, uh, you know, in Canada, U.S. and globally start to look at, did you perform? Did you promise? Did you deliver on what you promised? And if you didn't, then we need to look at uh, look at somebody else. So alt space for sure. And then the institutional space would be two areas of focus for us at AGF as opportunities going forward. And then so, yeah, we've had a few uh, webinars on selling in the social distancing world and doing doing due diligence. And I think it's kind of in waves is coming, coming over people going, okay, this is not, this is not done by August sort of thing. I, I, quite a few schools have said, no, nah, forget the fall. It's not going to happen. Um, so, uh, I, I, but are you guys still innovating, still putting out new, new products? I mean, you had three, uh, three uh, liquid alts products come out over the last while. They've got some traction and uh, perform. One of them performed really well in the in the crisis there, uh, living up to its name. But uh, uh, how are you guys continuing to, or are you continuing to put out products because you can't really do do roadshows of that, or, or is that maybe more on the product side than the trading? No, I mean I am involved a little bit on the product side as well. And yes, we are going to continue to innovate. We're going to continue to look for new opportunities on the product side. Um, and yes, we we might not be able to do roadshows, but you know technology is pretty good these days, James, oh, yeah. as you well know. And uh, you know advisors and clients are pretty engaged, right? When they're sitting at home, and there's no distractions around them, and you have something compelling to say. You know what we're seeing from our uh, retail sales teams is that clients are listening and they're and they're paying attention, and maybe paying attention a little bit more than they had been two or three months ago because their clients are asking them how we perform in this downdraft. And you better uh, you better have a pretty good answer for your client ultimately that uh, you know or or you could lose that client. Hey, how about for you, Ben? I mean, you have a few distractions at home, obviously, but uh, are you finding <laughs> uh, maybe as people move out, uh, maybe not as as, as seamless as, as AGF, and they're like, oh my god, we gotta we gotta get a we gotta get somebody else trading here. Uh, and I've also noticed there's been a few shops that have opened. And I think people have been home and saying, hey, I can start my own fund. Um, are you getting more traction and more more uh, more interest? Uh, of course, you can't do the conference circuit, but if you, inbound calls for you. Yeah, we've we've seen a, a flurry of incomings. I mean, that could be for various reasons. You know, it's, we've been launched for a year now. Um, our name's out there. We're, we're starting to partner with a lot of the global investment banks because we're not acting as a as an intermediary and, and, and taking anything from them. Uh, uh, their fee with the client always is the same, and ours is on top. Mm. And what we've noticed is in this time period, we've had to field a lot of questions about BCP. A lot of people oh, yeah. that only have one trader and it's like, well, if your trader gets sick, who's going to do it? And they're like, well, maybe the ops guy. And it's like, no, you know, <laughs> these, <laughs> these types of things are not what your investors are going to want to hear. And I think that they, I, I'm surprised by it that it even exists because it's the due diligence would just not pass. Yeah. I've joked with our senior management team, you know, we we had a BCP site that, you know, we would test once a year. We'd go out there and make sure the systems operated. Well, now we have like 500 BCP sites. We've proven <laughs> we've proven to to uh, to our our industry that we can do this remotely. Right. And be efficient and be and be, uh, you know, uh, caring with with the money that we're, uh, you know, we're obligated to manage here. So it's uh, BCP sites may have a bit of an issue going forward mm -hmm. because we've proven that we can do this stuff remotely and we don't need to be, you know, centralized outside, outside the downtown core anymore at a, at a site that we go visit once a year. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The whole mindset's just uh, clicked in a totally different direction. And, 
Well, maybe one last question. Uh, what kind of pearls of wisdom might you both of you have for uh, for folks in the uh, in the trading area, or even just in life in general? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start with that one, uh, James. Listen, I uh, I'm fortunate or unfortunate, I'm not quite sure, but I've uh, I've been around this game for a little bit of time. So I saw 1987, I saw 1999, 2000, I saw 2008, and now I'm seeing 2020. And you know, there's been one constant through that entire crisis period, uh, whether it's 87, 99, 08, or 20, that's been constant. And that is one, stay invested, right? Don't try to time this market because, you know, market timers for the most part, if they tell you they're successful, they're probably lying to you. It's awful difficult to time the market. So always stay invested um, and, and, and protect for the downside. Think about making sure that you insulate your portfolio that, uh, uh, for the downside because ultimately, you know, you have house insurance, you have car insurance, you have life insurance to protect you. A lot of people don't buy any insurance for their investments. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you have the ability to insure your investments going forward is vitally, vitally important. And then always have some dry powder available, right? Which means that you want to have some money sitting on the sidelines to take advantage of dislocations in the market. And if you can, you can find those dislocations and put money to work, ultimately that should work in your favor. So those are the three things that I would uh, you know, tell people, stay invested, right? Don't try to time the market, have some dry powder available and protect for the downside. Love it. How about you, Ben? And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I like that. That's a good one. Um, similarly, yeah, I, you know, I think being organized, worrying and preparing, mm. you know, I've, I'm a first crisis I was in was in 2008. Um and what I've come out with is worrying about what can go wrong is going to protect you. And every unprecedented situation that we live through prepares you for the next one. Uh, as an example, so back to 08, you know, when um, Lin Young-bak was elected in South Korea, he was a long-term opponent of the sunshine, oh, yeah. pol- the sunshine policy that his predecessors carried out. And the term, obviously, was a, it was an Aesop's fable, the, wind, the north wind and the sun. And it aimed for loosening containment on North Korea um, and versus embracing North Korea and eventually making North Korea nuclearize itself. You know, Lee shifted towards a less accommodating policy and promising only economic assistance only after North Korea abandoned. So I was at a $2 billion Asia-focused hedge fund at the time, and these were uncharted times. We're unsure of Kim Jong-il, how he would react to the new hard line, or even more apprehensive as to what what, what a regime controlled by his son, Kim Jong-un, would look like. So... As the traders at the Asia Focus Fund, we came up with the KJU protection plan, which KJU being Kim Jong-un. <laughs> so essentially, we had discretion to sell up to $250 million of Cosby futures throughout the night if we had any inclination that Kim Jong-il was on death's doorstep or, you know, war was on the horizon. So I guess the moral of it is, you know, if you're not worried, you need to worry. And if you're worried, you don't need to worry. <laughs> yeah. And also, something John touched on, um, you know, like, you, you know, you be paid, be mindful, be patient when he said, you know, relationships matter. Um, and especially in times of crisis, you need people you can depend on. So you need to foster those those relationships and and, you know, pay attention to them. Awesome. Wow. I think I've uh, yeah, my, my mind's clicked too. I, I can't. When I started in brokerage, I didn't do any of the trading. I was just an investment advisor. But I always wondered what's going on behind that screen there. So now it's great to get the insight on. How uh, how you guys do your job, both buy, sell, and, and in between. Um, thank you very much, uh, John and Ben, for, for being on this uh, little podcast we have here. And I look forward to having both of you on another one sometime soon. Thanks, James. Really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Yeah, I appreciate you having us. And anytime.